She spent her career empowering women and advocating for their well-being. Now she has put her experiences into words with a fresh new book about cultivating assertiveness and finding your voice. Kara Tuttle-Bell joins me to share her personal journey and dive into why the systems are failing women in the workplace and what we can do to help ourselves and each other. Let's go. Welcome to Courage and Other C-Words. I'm your host, Jen Root Martell, and thank you so much for joining me today. So throughout this podcast, I have tried to help spotlight some of the inequalities within the alcohol industry, pointing out issues that women have had in this male-dominated space through testimonials of just amazing women. And every story is different, but a lot of experiences are very much the same. And this is also true, of course, across industries, as we've seen from other professional women who have gone on to build their own businesses because when they've looked around, they've seen like really no space for themselves. And that was the only option. And though it has actually not come up directly on this podcast about sexual assault, sexual violence, and sexual miscontent, many have really had to endure that in the industry in order for them to get to where they want to go. And the testimonials that came out of the reckoning that we now call the Bevolution a couple of years ago and unfortunately are still surfacing they are heartbreaking and infuriating of what women have had to deal with and are still dealing with. So because so much of this gets either ignored or pushed under the table, some of it is not even confronted due to shame, pride, or whoever, so many other emotions I can't even imagine. I wanted to continue one of my goals of providing just accessible and meaningful resources for professionals listening to this podcast. And for that reason, I am so excited to welcome Kara Tuttle-Bell, who is joining me today. She is an author, professor, sexual assault prevention activist, and just all-around gender issue advocate. And I believe that she can really shine a bit of light on not only the causes of sexual assault, but also just provide some great tips for women who, that they can use to combat some of this just toxic masculinity or... I think just in general, have their voices heard louder and clearer in the workplace. So I hope that's right. <laughs> Welcome so much, Kara, to, to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to um, reach more people and talk about this issue, which is, as you said, sadly prevalent, really wherever we look. So, you know, it, it's not surprising to me to hear um, that it's prevalent in male-dominated industries, because we know we know that it is, right? And we know that it's touching on all of those areas. And for the reasons that make it more, more likely to occur, it also means it's more difficult for people to address it. And so I'm always happy uh, to have the opportunity to talk about it. I'm really passionate about it. Yes, it's fantastic. And I'm so glad there are people like you around <laughs> as resources to help to help those who who maybe just don't know how best to help themselves. And I do want to make some space really quick here at the top to, to just say, I'm so glad that they, they matched us up on kind of this online platform that we're both working off of. And I want to thank you so much for the work that you have done in this area, because I, I know I will, I'll let you tell your own story and we'll get into all of that in your own words. And you've launched a book about assertiveness and helping women conquer some of those negative voices in their heads. But I, 
I applaud you, especially also for the teaching and just for being out there as an advocate, because you are really extending that conversation into education and to educating that next generation so that they have the tools that, um, that, you know, going into the career world, a lot of us just didn't really have. Um, so I, so I applaud you for that. And I just, I did want to make space and a little bit of time there to, to just do a big thank you for all that you do um, in general. Cause I know, I know it's gotta be hard work and a lot, but, um, but it's so meaningful, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it is, it's, I describe it as tough work worth doing. So it, it can be very rewarding. You know, I think this is spot on. I did like that we were matched up. I love the name, you know, of the program because I really wanted as an individual to feel courageous, right? And to feel empowered. Once I learned kind of how to develop that, which it can be learned and it can be developed, it can be honed. Then I then I found myself advocating for others and wanted to do that more effectively too. So I, I need, and we all need more courage to be found everywhere. So thanks for having me. But it, it takes people like you to to amplify the message as well, so that I'm not just um, in the classroom, which I love. But you know, it needs to to come out of higher education and, and go across broader society if we're going to really um, impact many more people. Sure, sure. And I, I, I've talked to a bunch of people about this and especially everyone I interview and it needs to continue to be part of a conversation mm-hmm. because, you know, not talking about it, we've not talked about it for a really long time and yeah. what happens when you don't talk about it. Right. So um, not good things. So, right. Um, so yeah, I, I think continuing that, it doesn't have to be always negative. And right. It doesn't have to be, you know, always poo-poo on mm-hmm. certain people, but I, I think really elevating ourselves and each other. Um, it's, it's just so important. So, but before we get into all of that, I do really like to start each of these episodes with a conversation about your journey and kind of where you got started because a lot of, I just, I love that all of our roads are very twisted, um, to as far as how we get, how we become career women. So I think always start at the beginning. (laughs) Where are you from? How did you how did you uh, get started in life? Where were you? Sure. I am from rural Indiana. So like middle of nowhere in Indiana, southwestern <laughs> portion, lots of cornfields. Um, and, you know, not a whole lot of opportunities. So, I mean, really part of it was I had a very, very nice and like community driven upbringing there, but it, it was really isolated. So I just I did want to get out and see more of the world, see the world that I'd read about because mom was a teacher and I was always a very good student. So it makes sense that I end up doing this type of work within higher education, which is where my like main job is, um, because that's such a comfortable environment for me. But it it was like an economically depressed area and uh, pretty isolated and domestic violence impacted, you know, my family and a number of, of women in that area in a place where they had very few resources. So that shaped my career ambitions, not directly. I mean, I didn't think I was going to do the work that's so spot on, like I'm going to be an advocate um, and in charge of a center. I, I mean, I never imagined that, but I just knew what I didn't want, which was to feel like I could get trapped in a situation or feel disempowered. You know, I wanted options. And so 
when I went to, to college and undergrad, I was a political science major. I mean, I do love to think about how things are built and whose voices matter and who writes the laws and how we can influence this. And then I went to law school. Now, still at this point, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm just going to make good money and I'm going to be independent, right? So it was still like very self-focused at that time. But it, but again, I hadn't seen very much of the world. I took domestic violence law just as a side, just so I'm like, I'll just take this. It's not going to be my main gig, but I want to be able to help people, you know, because I had seen it and knew that that women in particular needed help they weren't getting. And so I just thought like, I'll just take this and I'll be able to help people in case uh, that comes up. Still not thinking I was going to end up doing anything like what I'm doing now. So I love that you point that out. I tell I tell lots of the young students, I'm like, look, if you look if you look me up on LinkedIn, it's for sure going to look like this was a direct line, and I knew exactly what I was doing, and I was planning for this job that didn't even exist back then. And that's not how it goes at all, right? What I just found though is whatever job I was doing, I had become a resource for people where when they're experiencing sexism, other forms of discrimination, sexual harassment, sexual assault, people were saying, go talk to Kara. You know, she's not going to judge you. She's going to know kind of what to do. And I tried to tell people the truth about their options. Sometimes the options are minimal and sometimes they're abysmal and sometimes they're not doing what they say they're supposed to do. And I'm, I'm functioning from this like empowering perspective that's honoring their agency. And so the truth telling becomes crucial, right? Where you're like, here's what's going to happen if you go here. Here's what's going to happen if you go here. Here's the risks to reporting and addressing this. Here's like the possible outcomes. And I'm happy to go with you. I didn't think of that as a career. I just thought I was like being a good at that time, woman treating other women well within the workplace. But I, I you know, I, I just kept getting narrower in my work, which was about gender equity broadly until now where I am really focused on sexual misconduct prevention, supporting people who have had an incident, supporting people who are going through the reporting process. And that really did require me to build assertiveness skills, to be able to hold firm, to sit in discomfort, to navigate conflict, and to to be courageous if I were going to do this well. You said that you took the gender law as like a side piece. Was yeah. there a specific focus going into law school that you wanted to focus on? Going in initially, no. Like I was just like okay. going to law right. school. And then I got there and I was okay. like, okay, now you have to figure out what your specialty is going to be. I'm kind of like a short-term goals person where I was like, now you've got yourself here, figure it out. What I found in the classes that I loved the most were like constitutional law, uh, family law, and employment discrimination. And so I thought early on um, that I was going to do labor and employment law. And I actually, again, I come from this rural area. My dad worked for the railroad. A lot of the railroaders haul coal. So a lot of the other men in the community, it does tend to be very gendered still, worked in the coal mines. So I also took labor law, right? I think there's some benefits to worker solidarity, you know, and and some union organizing across power differentials, right? And that's that's not 
the typical student perspective in some of the elite law schools in the country, right? To be focused on those types of classes. Because pretty early on, I was like, oh, you're not going to go into the big money fields of law because the more you focus on people and less on like companies and profit, right? The more it's family matters, human driven, it's just less profitable. That's okay. You know, like that's okay because that's what was keeping me up at night. So I was getting very attached to the human stories in the cases, which is not really what you're supposed to be doing in law school, right? Like you're learning how to navigate this written body of rules. And mostly you learn about the justices or the judges, the lawyers get a lot of credit. The human stories are often filtered out because we're like, okay, what though is the issue at law? I was driven by the human story. Now they were all in the past, right? Because we're reading cases that are that are called moot, right? The issue's moot. But I'm like attached to the human story and the injustice in that. And so that's how I was figuring out, okay, you've got to do something different than you initially thought. You maybe are not going to be in one of these big firms in a high-rise building in the city. I did some of those summer jobs. I was miserable. It just wasn't for me, right? So I'm like learning how, um, you know, work is going to be many, many hours, the bulk of your life. What do I want to spend it doing? So I was really glad to have parents and friends and people in your support network who weren't pressuring me to do the most profitable, profitable thing. Like I did feel like I had space. And I say that because I now encounter many, many students who feel like they can't make their own choices. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did, which was great. And you should humans try mm-hmm. to do what you're passionate about. You do spend so much time at work, right? And so try to find joy and pleasure in that. And if you're going to need to summon courage in the job, it's actually great to feel intensely connected to that, right? Because that's the drive. That's what's going to be pushing you to to fight the good fight or resist abusive people or bullies in our, our midst. So employment discrimination was my favorite class. And at first that might not seem like it's directly connected to what um, I do now, but it at, at the time there weren't classes on like sexual harassment, like narrowly, right? You know, you were learning it in other places. So that's where you actually learn about race discrimination, gender discrimination, discrimination on the basis of ability, national origin, ethnicity, sexual orientation. So it is really much a civil rights class where it's teaching you about the rules that exist, the ones that don't, who's protected, what duty uh, companies, employers owe to other people. And then Title IX is a federal law that now really governs the handling of sexual misconduct in higher education. That's that's directly applicable. That makes sense based on how employment law functions. And so this is an evolution that makes sense if you know that about law school and if you know that about employment law. But most people don't know that, nor should you. But it does make sense now when I'm looking back at my, my time and be like, oh, yeah, you did love that class because it's all about like... <laughs> anti-discrimination and, and some activism in the workplace. And, and it was a great foundation. I had, I had great instructors who were passionate about what they did and that was infectious. Nice. And I, yeah, I hate using the word, but I do feel like that, that it did actually have some, a lot of synergies to then the work that you're doing now. Yeah. And it's funny mm-hmm. that I feel like uh, I've heard over the years, a lot of people, you, you go to, you go to law school to learn how to argue. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you went to law school to learn how to be an advocate. <laughs> I did. I did. And it's, that's, that's rare. Special. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there's others. There's good people out there. It's great training for either. I argue on behalf of, yeah. of my cause or of victim survivors, right. you know, of the targets. And, and it's a great use of that skill set. So from law school, you have this now this renewed or at least like better understood passion. What was kind of the next step to go? Because I know that can probably be pretty daunting of like, I have this degree. I got out with my master's and I was like, uh, yeah. so what, what did that look like as far as options yeah. or direction? It, it was the life journey and it's where the personal comes into play, right? So I had begun dating a classmate, married a classmate. You know, I mentioned already I'm from this very rural area. I wasn't going to move back there. There aren't many jobs there. Um, so I was very willing to go to where his family was. And so we end up uh, living in Kentucky and Lexington first and then Louisville. And, you know, there's many pros to living there, but there weren't a lot of feminist jobs in the area, <laughs> you know. And so while I was wanting to work on gender equity, you know, there there were some, but people already had those jobs, right? So they're either... Yeah. The options were limited. And so that's what motivated me to to land in higher education, because I really did stop and be like, OK, where do you love to be? What's comfortable for you? But you can still evolve. And, you know, all the women in my family are teachers. This is just so this just makes so much sense now that I'm like I'm sitting here at 45 looking back on the on the journey is that I was really drawn to to education. And so I first started out you know, working in higher ed. So I was teaching like political science 101. I was teaching about American national government and the, and the, and the courts. And then I got a master's degree in women's and gender studies because I wanted one, right? Because I am totally this type of nerd. Because when I was in Indiana in the late nineties and early two thousands, this was not a degree program. So I was like teaching at a community college three days a week. And then I decided to get this master's in women's and gender studies, which really is my home, like my, my academic discipline home, because it's actually an interdisciplinary field. So you can do sociology and gender studies. You can do psychology and gender studies. You can do criminal, you know, like it's just a focus within other fields. So for me to come from law, but also wanted that educational foundation for my growing feminism, you know, my approach to how I was navigating the world, which to me, it's very positive. You know, I mean, I know the word brings up different feelings depending on who you are, your exposure to it. But I, I think everywhere you look, you can see the need for some continued activism if we're talking about safety and equity and equality um, and, and navigating discrimination. So I will say there's plenty of proof <laughs> around that work remains to be done in my efforts to make a good argument and maximize persuasion, right? So build influence. I wanted to have like the academic understanding and credentials behind me, right? This is how I knew to navigate the world. It's like, okay, learn the thing and then make your best argument. So I got a master's degree in women's and gender studies actually after I went to law school and then I continued teaching, but then I began teaching within a gender studies department. At this time in the career, I'm, I'm working in South Carolina, the University of South Carolina Upstate. They have a Center for Women's and Gender Studies. I mean, really amazing program. 
under-resourced as so many of them are, but doing like as much with every dollar as they could. So we were able to offer really interesting classes, which means I got to teach really interesting classes and do programs, bring in speakers. And um, I, I was learning the like administrator side of things. So not just the faculty teaching side, but also running a program and, and you know, organizing events and things like that. That really led to my next job. And also I'm learning more about myself, right? So you're like, this is like in your 20s, you're still learning. There's, It's never too late to decide what you want to be when you grow up, right? And you can always get better at it, whatever that thing is. But I really learned that I loved the meetings and quick decisions. Um, and I didn't want to do research and writing. I mean, I love the teaching, mm-hmm. but I was really much happier. And it was a better fit for me to, to right. be an administrator and, and to be in a staff role versus faculty. So then I switched over to that full time and worked at the Women's Center at Northwestern University in Chicago. And that has a broad mission of supporting women students, faculty, staff, you know, postdocs and trainees, like everyone in that university community and advancing issues of gender equity broadly and inclusively. That was great because I got to do a little bit of everything. Programs like speaking with authority, salary negotiation, healthy relationships, and supporting people who are experiencing sexual harassment and assault. And so that's how I, I was like a generalist. And then I've moved over the course of the career to do work more specifically focused on sexual misconduct prevention and support. And that's because this was becoming an issue again, right? An issue in higher education, an issue nationwide, right? So we have the Me Too movement happening. We have a lot of activism happening. um, And, you know, in the college campus, there was a real pressure to handle these cases better, offer more resources. And I would have worked really on whatever was the most pressing issue facing women on the campus at that time. And, and this was the one. And so then I've moved in to doing that full time and I do love it, but it's tough because we're asking the world to change. We're asking people to change behavior. So it's really required tapping into more courage than I knew that I had and <laughs> honing those skills that do sometimes involve arguing. But when I come back to it, it's like, okay, I'm really trying to maximize persuasion so that I can have influence, be in a stronger position, be in a safer position. And I always want to bring other people with me. Yeah. And elevate them with you. Did you, with this wonderful work that you've now kind of diving into more, do you feel like that masters and JD were kind of necessary to get you where you are? Or was that one of those things that was just kind of nice to have along the way? I would say they are necessary to get me where I am. They are not necessary to do this type of work. I really want to honor lots of different paths to the work. And actually, I believe firmly, I believe firmly that each of us have to take this up, right? Because I can talk to you today, but I don't work in your industry, you know, and to create change in your industry, or even I tell the students in your residence hall, in your student organization, right? You've got to, you've got to take it. You've got to take what you've learned here and do some of that work yourself or, or we're not going to change anything or not fast enough because there's just not enough of us, right. Who get to do this work full time. A lot of places are relying upon volunteers and kudos to those volunteers 
right? It's, it's this completely under-resourced, insufficiently prioritized. Oh yeah, no, it's a passion, passion project. Right. So it becomes, you know, it just becomes unsustainable. We have a lot of burnout in the field. So I'm very lucky to be able to do this as a full-time job where I get a decent salary and I have benefits and get to do this because a lot of places are being run by other duties as assigned or just pure volunteerism, you know, but this is a, this is a thing where I was like, I had both the law degree and there's, there's a legal compliance side to this, right? Like there, there are laws that govern this. There are policies at every employer and, and academic institutions are also employers, you know? So that was very comforting when I was an applicant to be the to be the director of the center I run now is that I had both degrees, right? So I had academic credentials on this as a feminist issue, as a gender equity issue. Like I have a master's degree, which is like, she's got some level of knowledge on the subject, but also I understand what we're navigating, which is a compliance landscape. And I try to use that knowledge though, to push us to make different decisions where we have discretion and room to do so. So for me, compliance is the floor. It's the bare minimum, right? It's what state legislatures or Congress, and often many years ago said, you have to do this. Is that the best we can do? Not even close, right? So where humans have agency and resources or not, you know, like let's do more in tackling the issue, but knowing what the law says and what the requirements are, are really the framework of all of that um, institutional advocacy that I do, which is in saying, I know we have to do this. And I know it says we have to do this this way, but it doesn't mean we can't do this. And it does give us room to, you know, be better humans and to make more trauma informed decisions and to offer more knowing that systems could be failing in this way here, this way there, um, and just take better care of the people in our community because we can sometimes, we, we can actually right. do a lot more and we should be. Right. And so moving into kind of the work that you do, I, I know we want to talk about the book that you've written and, and the tools that you've been able to provide um, for women to kind of help build them up um, on the assertiveness level. But just to talk briefly about kind of this sexual harassment, sexual assault issue, because it, despite all of the gains in advocacy that women have been doing for decades, we are still having these conversations and we are still having these issues. And this whole, you know, blow up in the beer industry happened only a few years ago. And so mm-hmm. it's like when, you know, it had been happening for, for decades and so I guess my kind of like one question, um, you know, if you could talk to you just sort of why, like, why is this such a lingering problem? Like, why are we dealing? Why are we, why are we still dealing with this issue? Um, I it, laugh, but it's just because it's out of absolute infuriated frustration. And so no, I, I get it, it, but it's just, it's like, why, why are we still why? having this conversation? Why do you still have to do the work that you're doing? Right. I mean, I'd love to be put out of a job, right? Except right, nowhere near. Yeah, I know. I don't expect <laughs> I it, it in my lifetime, right? There's going to be plenty of work to do, sadly. Wow. You know, not there is a lot of effort and a lot of trying. And we have a lot of really strong allies, and I don't want to be dismissive of that, but it is not a surprise to me at all 
that within the industry, right, that has been historically and remains male dominated, that this has been insufficiently addressed. If you're not living it, if you're not feeling it, if you're not seeing it on a daily basis, we have a real human tendency to want to put this out of mind, not deal with the discomfort, not acknowledge the prevalence. And that is infuriating when you are in the population that is more likely to experience this because we have been navigating issues like this our entire lives, right? There is not a person who is a woman or is LGBTQ that I know that hasn't had to navigate their personal safety in a, in a way related to sexual harassment or assault. Everyone has a story, at least one, sometimes many stories. Women have many, many decisions throughout the day that we have become so familiar making, like that we are not even aware of how much self-policing we do to maximize our safety, right? And this is an exercise sometimes people do in the classroom, and it's shocking to every group of people, even when they come in and they're like, yes, I believe that this is an issue. I care about this issue. But so then we sit down and we're like, okay, start at the beginning of your day and tell me all the things you do to prevent your own assault. And at first they're thinking, oh, you know, not many. Like, what are the obvious things? Like, maybe I don't park in the basement of a dark parking garage, but maybe that's the only parking spot left, right? So The problem is I still got plenty of parking garages with insufficient lighting and no security, right? And everybody has to go about their day. And so sometimes we are parking in unsafe places or using public transportation and choosing what to wear and making sure it's not too attractive. Like we want to look nice, but we don't want to be inviting, which we're not, but like inviting too much flirting or sexual objectification. And then there's arguments about, but but some people are dressing sexy on purpose. But dressing however you dress is not an invitation for assault, right? Consent is the key to all of this. Things aren't sexual harassment if it's wanted behavior. It's when it's unwanted that it becomes problematic. So sometimes I have complaints too where people are like, we're just trying to remove all of the fun. Humans like the banter. What's wrong with compliments? We like flirting in the workplace. Anything that is wanted is fine. It needs to be reciprocal. What I think where there's a huge gap in understanding is that it's the unwanted behavior. It's the inappropriate behavior. It's the abuse of power differentials. We're not acknowledging that some people have too much privilege and that they're abusing the power and privilege and harassing people who don't have the ability to resist in the way that that they're might imagining because we don't feel safe or we need that job. I mean, we're supporting like families, supporting children. And so the conditions um, of how we've structured society really in any profession haven't changed enough for people to be sufficiently protected. People know this. This is not like, this is not (laughs) Kara's feminist propaganda. And sometimes I get some real resistance to what I'm talking about. But if you have an insurance policy in your workplace, which most employers do have some insurance policy, the insurers know that the number of men and the ratio of men to women in a, in a workplace factors into 
how much they're going to charge that industry, that company, that organization for their insurance on sexual harassment claims. This is math. Yes, they know. It's just directly, this is not something that like I'm making up or this is an argument about, like this is how the insurance industry works when they're considering the likelihood of litigation or sexual harassment claims in a workplace. And so it's, it's, there's a lot of proof to this. There's a lot of spillover. There's a lot of costs in terms of employee engagement and attendance and absenteeism. And then we have these policies that, I mean, a lot of them were written in the mid nineties, really function to protect the company and not so much the individual who's experiencing the harm. Right. Mm -hmm. So they were written also from a compliance standpoint. And what's the fear of the employer? The employer doesn't want to be sued, right? I mean, nobody would say that they want this to occur in their field, in their industry. Everyone generally is against sexual misconduct of any form. So I could start from that when I go into a room, but it's then like, okay, how are we going to sufficiently address it? That's where it falls apart because it takes time. It takes training. It takes dollars. It takes doing things differently. And a lot of people are really happy with the way things have been running, especially if it serves them. So I haven't seen that change. And that kind of change is going to be crucial because what we're mostly doing is responding after harm occurs. Here's what to do if it's occurred. Here's how to report. We're not really funding prevention. And when, when the whole thing remains insufficiently resourced, offices like mine, people like me, all of these, like, I I think humans who care deeply about the issue. There are many people who work in HR, who work in human resources, who want to help you, but they have to triage their day, right? And so things like prevention and training people who don't want to be trained, and let's just admit that, right? A lot of people think they don't need the training, get set to the wayside. And I will say to, you know, the good allies who might be listening is, you know, your friends may not want to be trained on this issue. They don't want to go. They roll their eyes. They groan. They think it's heavy. They think it's going to be uncomfortable. What I found, and I do this all the time, years in, right, is that most perpetrators don't think that they're a perpetrator. They think the perpetrator is someone over there who's doing something worse. We have such a low bar for what is considered Mm -hmm. decent behavior that I very rarely find a person who thinks they need the training. And let me tell you, we all need the training. We all do. Very, very few people worldwide had decent training about sexual relationships, romantic relationships, setting boundaries, what consent is, how to navigate it, how to articulate it, how to resist unwanted advances. I've yet to find a group of people anywhere who were like, yes, I got that training when I should have like an early adolescence and I've gotten supplemental training going on, where is it happening? Someone please tell me if you, if you know of it, please tell me, I want to learn more. I was just thinking like kind of racking my brain over the years of like even a class or Mm -hmm. even when we were younger sex ed, that's, you know, almost laughed at. Um, Uh, Yeah. Mine was was atrocious. Very very little. Mine was scare tactic. You know, it was like, this is what happens. This is what a sexually transmitted disease looks like. Don't have sex. Like that's the overarching (laughs) message. That's not helping any of us. It might scare you for a while, but it's not been proven (laughs) to be effective. Yeah, no, no, that's very true. Um, And I, and I think then also the, those relationships are, are, are again, then also not 
you know, that relationship is not actually actively mm-hmm. educated, I guess, or talked about mm-hmm. um, in a way that is helpful because I think there's also, it's not only the perpetrator, but it's the victim as well. I, I think it really took a lot of people having testimonials for others to even be like, oh my God, mm-hmm. yes, like that, that was, that's what I've been dealing with. And it's just yes. always like been weird, but I didn't really think about it because yeah. it's, you know, not my job or it's whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I know just going back to, you mentioned the Me Too movement and I, I, I know that really hit everybody pretty hard when it really shouldn't have because everyone was dealing with it. And that whole everyone was dealing with it. I don't think I fully appreciated mm-hmm. everyone is dealing with it. Yeah. And that I was I was in a horrific mood for weeks and I couldn't understand why. And it's like because mm-hmm. my entire feed is full of these of these stories because it's yeah. fucking everybody. Uh, yes. And it's just it. It doesn't, and it's different levels. And, you know, some of mm-hmm. them are heavily traumatic and others are just like annoyingly inconvenient and feel awful and make you yeah. feel shameful for a few minutes. But like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. matter. None of it and should be happening. Wherever you are on the spectrum, it's, uh, right. it's, it's inappropriate. So, and yeah, I have to do a lot fine. of that. Like my, yeah, we do a lot of that too, which we're like, it's still wrong. It's still, if it's, an, if it's annoying it's still wrong. You shouldn't have to deal with it. And actually the research really tells us that not addressing all of those minor, like they're perceived to be minor slights is tolerance that then makes the more egregious, more severe, more traumatizing behaviors, much more likely to happen. We're we're in this unfortunate stance of like, we're humans, pick your industry, just humans are like, well, I'd report something if it were really awful. Humans convince themselves, I don't need to address that. I don't need to confront my friend on that bad behavior because it's minor. I don't need to report that because I don't want to overreact. I don't want to cause a disturbance. You don't have to report everything to like file official report and get them in trouble. But you do, you do, listeners, need to address the behavior promptly. That nipping in the bud of saying like, that's not appropriate. You don't have to answer that question. Hey, you know, we can't do that anymore. These are very small acts of bystander intervention that anyone can do that we need to start doing ASAP. That peer policing, right? So it doesn't have to be me, right? And it doesn't, you don't want it to be me, the like 45 year old white lady sexual assault prevention lady. You know how I feel about it. You know what I'm going to say when I come in to do a training. You'll all know already. I mean, I'll do it. Because I'll take my audience wherever I find it. But if the, especially the male allies who are listening, if you're a man in the profession, you are best poised to create change because other men listen to you. Now that's sexism at work. They should be listening to us, but they listen to men. So male allies could do the most. You've got to say, hey, we're not doing, you know, you can't do that. That's inappropriate. You know, don't treat her this way. You've got to call your peers out on their behavior to create change. The evidence on this is clear. It's just really hard for people to do. It's just really hard. It is because you are, you're, you're calling your friends out. Yes. And it's, but it's okay. You know what I mean? It doesn't have, you don't have to dramatically react, right? You don't have to publicly shame them. Although, you know, teach their own depends on the behavior, but it can be a pull aside and be like, Hey, I don't know if you've thought about how, it might feel, you know, or, you know, 
acknowledging that people are outnumbered or they're new or that it's, you know, you don't get to decide how other people should feel about your behavior either. Right. Because I hear that all the time too, where people are like, I'm just joking. What? Like, just be nicer. That's a big one. Just be a better human. Like you don't get to decide that other people shouldn't be offended. You, you will know whether you meant it or not, but you don't get to control how it lands, right? So maybe you did have good intentions, but man, your impact was way off. Both mm-hmm. things can be true. And we've got to start caring about that. Otherwise, we're not addressing the issue. So it does, this is called bystander intervention. And I, re- I recommend training. And there's lots of free online resources for this too. But it does require better intervention by bystanders no matter your role. And I think that that moves really nicely into, okay, that's how, that's how like a man could come in and just be like, we've got to make this better. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, we need to talk about it. We as women can also do better standing up for ourselves. Yes. And you have written a book about this. Yes. I believe. Yes. <laughs> so uh, could you walk me through a little bit about the thought process behind wanting to put this down on paper, why you think it was important. And then let's talk about, let's break it down and see kind of like what, what it is that, you know, what can we be doing? What, what does it mean to be better and more assertive um, and not be a bitch? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's sometimes the label, right? Of course. So very easily, very easily the label often undeserved. So I wrote a book during the pandemic. I did. I mean, that was when I had the opportunity because. Hey, passion project. <laughs> yes. You know, it was when my work changed dramatically and they, uh, we were very restricted. Right. And so people were not going into work, going on campus. And for a while that really drove down the traffic that my office would have experienced, which it should have, right. It should have, because if people are interacting less than there should be, fewer opportunities for sexual misconduct. So um, it was then finally I was like, okay, what is the thing you haven't had time to do? And this is this was a side project for me and I wanted it not to be so narrowly focused on sexual misconduct because that is heavy, you know, and I liked the uplifting parts of, of gender equity work that I'd had in, in prior jobs. So I wanted to revisit that. And, you know, I was working with uh, the publisher and having conversations with her. And she was like, okay, why do people come talk to you? And a lot of people come talk to me, like when, not for work reasons, like your main, your main gig, but like other people seek you out. What's that for? What's, what's your contribution? And so I was like, okay, a lot of younger women come talk to me when they have to negotiate their salary or they have a tough meeting or something that they're nervous about asking for. And so she's like, okay, and what's your advice? And so we, we landed on assertiveness, which, you know, I knew that it was, it's like, I just do feel like, and I'd said, you know, kind of one of my like rants, I was like, we're drowning in timidity, which is where we get the the title. And I wanted other women to learn what, what life had taught me, right. Is that you can make it through the tough meeting and you can make it through the difficult conversation. And it actually feels really good to confront these things. It actually feels good. It's scary at first, but it feels good. And you can sleep better at night knowing that you did the thing, right? Because I'm not chewing on it for three days and then coming up later with like, oh, I wish I'd said something or I wish I'd done something. I'm trying to do it. 
right? So then I get to rest easy. I'm not in this regret or, or resentment phase because I'm living assertively. It's a small book. It's meant to be a, a guide. It's conversational. There's some worksheets in that um, because it does, it, because people believe like either they're confident or they're not, or they're extroverted or they're not. And that's not true. All of this can be learned, right? Actually, we know this because a lot of us are introverts who perform as extroverts and then are exhausted and recharge and then <laughs> burst back out in the day, you know. So all of this can be learned. And, uh, you know, I'm living proof of that and had become a resource for people in that. And that's where I was like, OK, I'm having all of these conversations. L let's put put it down on paper. And that's when I had the time, quite frankly, and, and was able to do that. And uh, Linda was my publisher. She was a great coach. And I just did it one chapter at a time. I figured out how to write, which was for me, when I am pissed off about something, sit down and get it out on paper, right? Because if I'm like venting to my friends at happy hour, which is a wonderful part of my life, that's good support network. We take care of each other in that way, you know. That, that functions as a release valve for me, but that's not necessarily contributing to the issue. And so putting those venting sessions on paper was how I got going, you know, on, on each topic. And then, you know, you have to go back and edit later because sometimes those angry rants aren't of course. <laughs> as smooth of course. as we'd like them you to know, be in, for it, publication. Helps. It helps to have an editing eye for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> that's great. So what, what would you say is kind of the the thing that women are not doing enough of. Okay. So, so really it's the practice, right? It's the, it's the practice like assertiveness building as a, as a skill. It's like a muscle because people are trying to cram the night before you negotiate salary and listen, I'll help you cram. There are online tools for this. You can, you can pull a script and it's worth doing right to have that tool. That's like going to help you get through that meeting. But it's not so much the ask, the words of the ask that are the problem. Where we're failing in this is holding firm and sitting in discomfort and being relentless, like bringing it back if, if you do get a no. Um, and so that's the thing that I think people have to work on is, is planning ahead, being strategic, which is very hard when our feelings get involved. Okay. It's very hard if we've been socialized to be pleasant. It's very hard if we're navigating an environment for our safety. It is because there's competing interests there where we're trying to figure out when it's worth it or not. And listen, I want to be clear. There's nothing meant to be victim blaming about any of this message. I am not saying go out and be assertive, risk be damned, you know, in all sure. situations. I'm really saying choose your battles. And here's what the research tells us. So I read hundreds of books on assertiveness, and this has come in phases. So the first wave of books on this really came out in the 70s. So think of the women's movement. And there's a lot of like consciousness raising and women groups forming, you know, like the book clubs, but with the activist component. And then it kind of died down again because progress is not linear. We, we experience mm -hmm. periods of backlash. And then another wave in the 90s. And I'll tell you, these books are really good. I mean, there's going to be some dated examples that you cringe at. But if you want cheap used books, by all means, you're going to learn some lessons from the assertiveness manuals 
of yesteryear, because sadly, we haven't made that much change. So a lot of it remains really relevant. But what I thought was missing, where I was like trying to add something um, to the existing works that are out there, is this was all really individual focused in like, you get your raise, you get your salary, you get your flex time or whatever it is. And then we were just forgetting about assertiveness until we had another need. And I know that the problems of like sexual harassment or gender equity or, or just pick a form of discrimination, those are systemic problems. Those are structural problems. It's not just about the individual. It's not just about like whatever relationship like Kara and Jen may have, right? Between these two humans, it's part of a larger organization of society. And so I wanted there to be the sense of collective responsibility, like, okay, you've learned how to take better care of yourself. Great. But you also now got to advocate for others. So then I get back into my bystander intervention. These are societal issues in society. These are not just individual issues. There's individual impact, but these are sometimes considered a public health epidemic, which sexual violence is. It's at epidemic levels. So it requires more of a collective response. And so that's where I want you to learn how to advocate for yourself in a meeting or an uncomfortable encounter. But I also want you then to advocate for others in a meeting or an uncomfortable encounter where they're being targeted, even if it's a slight, right? The Even if it's that like inappropriate joke or side comment that, yeah, they can survive their day. We survive all kinds of things, but we shouldn't have to. And the corrective behavior comes when we say things like, you know, we say, hey, I think we interrupted Jen. I'd like to go back to what she's saying and give her an opportunity to finish, mm-hmm. right? Or if there's like that credit taking happen where, and listen, there's plenty of research on this. Woman raises an idea in a meeting, chatter, chatter, chatter. Then a man says essentially the same idea. And people are like, what a great idea, John. That's amazing. We should do that. So then you could be the person who's like, well, I think that's what Jen was saying a minute ago. And does that like redirect? So I want people to think of like the work to be done as really small steps where we're giving credit where credit is due, where we're leveling the playing field, you know, for others in this sort of like constant way. And it does require assertiveness because my gosh, everywhere you look, we've been trained to mind our own business or be pleasant or, you know, not create conflict, but we're, we're just delaying the conflict. It's still there. People still feel bad and feel undervalued and have anxiety, depression, insomnia because of the way things are functioning. And we're, and we think we're not addressing it. Well, we're paying the price just outside the meeting or at another time. So there are exercises in there, which are saying like, okay. And I, and I want you to be able to start with the individual because it's, we, this is confidence building too. And it's, it's really hard to like stand up in a room and do these things in front of others. So by all means, so hard. start where you are. So hard. Yeah. It's very right. hard. It, it is. It, so it's hard. very hard. So I don't want to be um, casual about this. I want you to build up to the, the tough thing, right? It's very hard to launch into the tough thing. 
And humans think they're ready to do that, but they're not. They, they think when the, when the moment happens, we're going to be superheroes. Well, not if you've been a coward your whole life until then, you know, you're going to be a coward yeah. then. And there's so many reasons to shy away. And I, I don't want to dismiss that, but thinking about like, say the last three times where you didn't get what you want, and then you can focus on whatever relationship it can be your personal relationship. It can be like a mother-in-law. It can be your boss, right? So this is really assertiveness for all settings. How did you handle it? What do you wish you had done? You know, knowing now how it went, what would your different approach be? So it's self-reflection. It can be a writing exercise, but you can whiteboard it. You can post it, note it. It's sometimes what's called empathy mapping, where we stop thinking about ourselves which is often the focus, like I'm nervous about this meeting I have to have, right? I'm worried about me in this. Great. You, I want you to worry about you, but I also want you then to say like, if I'm the other person, how are they going to hear this? How are they going to be most likely persuaded? So it's less about like, I care about this issue because, because people are busy and they actually may not care about what you care about. I hate to break it to you. So then like, let's maximize persuasion and efficiency and be like, they care about it because this is in their self-interest because, and this is a strategy. This is a strategy. So this is assertiveness as a strategy to like, I'm going to say the thing and be direct and be clear and be present and advocate for my wants. And here's where assertiveness is different than aggressiveness is I'm going to respect and not trample on the rights of others aggressiveness is that steamrolling of others. And, and we know those people, right? Like they dominate the space. They dominate the meeting. It's like dog eat dog. It's very like, I'm going to climb my way to the top and everybody else be damned. That's not what I'm talking about. Or I just have to, I have to know more than everybody. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. And show you that I know more. Yeah. That yes. We deal and with like that the most. Of just, oh my God, the egos and the performing. I can only yeah. imagine. I can only imagine. Right. <laughs> so this is about countering that and disrupting that. It's not about mimicking that. And so sometimes people are like, well, I don't want to be aggressive. And I'm like saying, I'm not advocating for aggressiveness. I'm advocating for assertiveness. That's not actually being a bitch, but you know, a lot of people have cultivated this like bitch persona in response to really toxic, hostile workplaces. So I don't even want to fault necessarily them for that. That is how they've developed a tough exterior and survived really inhospitable environments sometimes. Sometimes they're just not nice people. It depends. But also I'm going to ask the listener to consider why they've learned to navigate the space in this way. And are they behaving any differently than a man? Are we just used to tolerating really offensive jerk behaviors in men, but we are not used to tolerating that in women? And are we labeling aggressive women differently than we are aggressive men? Because we label aggressive men leaders a lot of the time. You know, he's forceful, but he's, you know, uh, effective. And we tolerate really rude behavior among these like high ranking men in spaces. Sometimes they're not high ranking and we just tolerate it anyway. We tolerate a lot of bad behavior from mediocre colleagues all the time. Are we labeling assertive women, you know, as aggressive when they're actually engaging fairly, right? Because firm but fair is taking up your rightful space, doing the job they asked you to do, 
showing up in the workplace, being present, that's all assertiveness is. And so I think that, you know, if you're uncomfortable with that, you actually have a lot of internalized sexism that you still need to deal with because you're expecting historically, traditionally feminine behaviors that don't help women advance in the, in the modern workplace and don't serve us well. I mean, like they haven't served us well in terms of protecting us from sexual harassment or other harms. Oh, absolutely not. Right. Because we're still talking about it. Because we're, we're still talking about it. This is a cultural shift mm-hmm. on both sides mm-hmm. that has just got to be, I mean, it really does. It, it comes down to the individual and mm-hmm. helping us as women harness that energy in a constructive way. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's, it's crazy to, you know, you were talking about in your day, you know, the, the sitting on a safety thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like if it's not safety, it's impression of you mm-hmm. and how are people thinking of you with how you're saying, and it is amazing. We, we've got to spend so much time being concerned yes. about how what we say is hitting yes, uh, or landing is what you said, which I think was a great way of saying it. And, um, and I think that we think too much about, I don't want to say this is going to put this the wrong way, but we think we are co- too concerned about other people's feelings. Yes. And not, and at the expense of our own. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm always trying to strike this balance myself. Sure. Because that's what we are doing. We have to strike that it balance. It is about striking the balance, right? It, so it is yeah. choosing your battles. And, and sometimes it, you know, I find myself veering into aggressive behavior when I have an aggressive audience or an aggressive person on the other side of the table. So I'm trying to match mm-hmm. what they're putting out, but it's still a strategy, right? So the assertiveness training, if you do it, and it's a practice, right? And there are lots of books and there's lots of resources, you know, um, out there. And I urge you to think about this because that's what shifts us from feeling wounded and thinking three days later of the thing we wish we'd said to actually responding immediately. So it becomes this power play negotiation in a way that's protective, that's protective and strategic. It's not just calling out their behavior because their behavior is wrong, but it's actually putting you in a stronger position, which ultimately is my goal. Okay. If we're spending all this time, which we are thinking about how we're presenting ourselves and how we're being perceived, let's spend it in a more constructive way, in a more empowering way. And I I try to use all the tools. I do. Like tough day, tough meeting. I might wear a red jacket or put on red lipstick and, you know, power dress. I also like listen to Tina Turner on my way to work where like, you know, try to have something that's like, okay, you know, I'm like doing all of the, the amping up. But I don't, I try not to come in hot though in the meeting. I try to come in pleasant. (sighs) What a word. I don't want you to be pleasant Mm -hmm. just to be more pleasant. I want you to use the pleasantness strategically, right? Because if we can disarm them, if we can ease in to whatever's going to be the tension causing things, the bigger ask, I'm I'm here for doing what helps you get the yes that you're looking for, the change that you're looking for. But you have to then be ready to be firm. So we're not going to be pleasant just so that they think we're pleasant. I don't, you know, 
I don't want you just to be liked. I want you to be effective. I want you to be safe. I want you to advance in the career, the ways in which, and at the pace of which you deserve. And, you know, I'm in the, I'm in Nashville, I'm in the South. So sometimes I talk to um, audiences uh, of like women in their forties and fifties, and they're like visibly fretting, you know, where they're like, oh, you know, this sounds so abrasive. And I'm like, okay, but is it working for you? Right. Is this gendered socialization and pleasant behavior where we're polite is raising our daughters to be seen but not heard? Is this working for us? It's not. It's not. I'm not advocating that you go out and just be rude to people. That's not what I'm asking for at all. But you do have a right to egalitarian relationships, to equity, to safety. You do have that right. You have a right to be heard and to fulfill your role in a workplace, you have a right to a to healthy boundaries. You do, but people are not going to read your mind, and people are going to abuse those boundaries unless you constantly reinforce okay. them. Right? You've got you do have to do some of the teaching people have to treat you, unfortunately, because they're not getting lessons either, and that's what this is about. There are some tips. I go into this carefully too, because sometimes people are just trying to steamroll you, to trample, you know, your cause or to harm you. Sometimes they're just trying to do that, right? And no assertiveness strategy can necessarily keep you safe. So this is, let's take lessons from what we know though. Okay. So here is some, the tips that might help sometimes. We do know that People who've experienced discrimination, sexual harassment, and sexual assault often tell us there there were moments, there were warning signs when they wish they had trusted their gut. You know, mm-hmm. so I want to or I want to say, do it. Your body's telling you something, right? And also trust your anger, and don't be afraid of anger because your anger's telling you something. I don't want to let it out necessarily in all the ways like we want to harness it, you know. But don't be afraid of it, and and don't suppress it. Because it's telling you something about your environment or your relationship. Then if someone has crossed a boundary, it is a best practice to address it immediately. To say, mm. to, to like if someone's touching your, your leg, move their hand. You know, say, you know, that's making me uncomfortable. Using the word no. You know, it's, it's, it's clear and... It may or may not work. I don't know. Like we we don't know. But if you have to report something to your company, to the police, they're going to ask actually if you voiced resistance and it's very helpful to building a case. Now this didn't prevent it. I know, but it's helpful to build the report if you did. And so that's some of the like the tough advice. And then, you know, in my book, there's there's a list of possible responses a list of ideas for direct resistance or indirect resistance. I'm fine with indirect resistance. That's not weakness. That's strategy. That's, that's a remove, remove yourself from the situation safely process. So there's a lot of room in here to be good to yourself, to be compassionate to yourself because we're doing the best we can in, in really unequal and inhospitable environments that really weren't typically built for women to be as included as they are now um, and didn't really change 
along with the demographics when women like entered the industry or the field, right? We're still functioning with these old structures. I think it's funny you say, um, like kind of trust that gut. I know I, I listen to way too many true crime podcasts, so it's always Mm. the, you know, trying to keep yourself safe, trust, trust the hair on the back of your neck Mm -hmm. and that female intuition. You know, we keep coming back to that good old female intuition. They say that that's a thing for a reason and that don't be, don't be afraid when that little voice Mm -hmm. is telling you something is not okay, even though you don't want to ruffle feathers and don't want to, you know, blow up the world of your space and you're really enjoying what you're doing, just not the people you're doing it with. And I think that all of that is very, very difficult, but, but you do have to, you, you do have to stand up for yourself. You do, but there's also, you can start in small ways. You can be like, excuse me, I'm going to the restroom. Right. And people actually don't follow ask me follow-up questions about that, you know, and then you just don't go back, right? Don't go to the restroom, leave. Or we all have devices. So you can take a call or a text. You can be like, I'm sorry. You can say you don't feel well. I'm all for all these indirect strategies. Yourself. Yeah. Like you've been signaled, like trusting your gut. Now I'm not a scientist. I, you know, I was political science, law school, mm-hmm. gender studies. So, you know, I don't know much more than what I'm going to say, but my scientist friends have convinced me that there is this like biological justification for trusting those hairs on the back of your neck, your gut, you know, mm-hmm. your women's intuition, whatever we call it. And I know how many of my friends were, were sitting in our forties. We, you know, in my friend group here, wish we'd trusted it when we were younger, right? Wish we hadn't talked ourselves out of feeling what we felt and been less concerned about being pleasant and more concerned about being respected and or safe. I almost want to be like, and seen. That was a really lovely wrap up of just, um, of, of just, yes, bringing it kind of all back in and, and putting a bow on it. I, I think that we all need to do a little bit better educating ourselves. Um, and I'm, I'm really I'm glad that you are out there talking about these things and writing a book that is accessible. Because I feel like a lot of those sci- political science books, um, or at least social books, are not yeah. <laughs> at all. Having read way too many in college um, yeah. myself, and so, so yes, I, I, I thank you so much. I, I know, I'm, sh- I know we could just keep going and keep <laughs> yes. going, and so want to want to just thank you so much for all of this information. I think if there's is is there anything else that we we haven't talked about or that we haven't that you would still like to mention or kind of any sort of like closing closing words? Because um, I I feel like I feel like this is is really great conversation. You know, I think I'll close with with a renewed call. I mentioned it earlier, but trust in your anger and take those signals and be okay with it. I don't want you to live there. I don't want you to be bitter, you know, but so much of the anger that we feel when it comes up from time to time is very justified. I try to feel it, think about it and harness it as fuel. Mm -hmm. I want you to feel it, acknowledge it, think about it and figure out what to do with it. Right. And, and in a constructive way, because it's telling you something. And then if you have any responsibility for raising children or working with young girls in particular, I want you to let them be angry 
raise angry girls. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't socialize the anger out of them. That's what keeps so many of us where we are. Right. And that's why when we're older, we're so thankful to be older because we are less concerned with being pleasant, whether people like us or not, how we're being perceived. We're much more vigilant about policing our boundaries. And I don't want people to have to wait until they're 40 or 50 or 60 to learn that, right? Let's prevent so many of the harms by really teaching good boundary setting and boundary maintaining much early on. And just let yourself explore that. It's okay, you know? Get like create space for that. If they're having their feelings, explore that. Where are they coming from? You might learn so much more, you know, about each other if you can have those conversations, you know, and then really just show up for other people as well, right? I mean, I want you to get your salary, your raise, your safety, your well health and well being. Um, but if we're doing good work and, you know, changing our world, whatever that is. It, it requires that community focus and bringing others with us. Absolutely. And leaning on others. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's actually fine. Do we don't have to be super women. We don't have to be invincible. There's nothing better than a good support network. And, you know, it. you take turns. You take turns. It's fine. Yeah. You know, so many of us love to show up for other people and feel needed and wanted. Let people support you. It's fine. We're humans. We're not robots. We're going to have things happen in life. We're going to have emotional responses. Some of those things, you, you need a place to process the feelings that maybe are not fair, that we don't need to act on, and then figure out the ones that are reasonable and healthy and productive and, and to feel heard and seen. And so don't try to do it by yourself, especially you know if you're in, these, in a tough industry that remains male-dominated or you know, the, the resources or other people like you doing the work are few and far between, then those connections are crucially important. And so find those and foster those. It just makes life better. It does. It does. And it, I feel like you just feeling supported can bring forward some of that kind of rage mm-hmm. and assertiveness yes, in a positive for way. Sure. Because mm-hmm. you, you do have people around who are there for you and not everyone's going to be like, oh, that she's right. working out. It's really um, the key because they, they get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, that's wonderful. And your, your book, let's, where, where can we, let's do a shameless plug. Oh, sure. Let's, the let's the, plug the, the book. Here. Plug it. Um, where's the best way to, to get that if someone wants to, wants to, to buy their own. So you can find more information, you know, about me, about the work I do and some free resources on my website, which is karatuttlebell.com. And uh, there, there is uh, an Instagram for the book. Also, the book is Drowning in Timidity. That's the main title. It's on women, politeness, and the power of assertive living. Um, you can buy it directly from my website, or you can buy it at walmart.com. You can get it on Amazon, either in hard copy or Kindle. There's some other places. There's the Innovation Women Bookstore. There's Professional Women's Network. I, I urge anyone to, to visit my website to start, and I'll put some free resources and a free shipping code on there for your listeners. And so, um, and then you can contact me, anyone, if you want to learn more or you have an issue you want to discuss, right? So if you don't have a support network, I'm at least one place you can start. We'll, we'll go from there. Oh, that's really wonderful. Thank you so much for offering that. And there's uh, information um, on your website that you can directly contact you 
for issues. Okay. That's great. And thank you. I will, um, I will put that code in our show notes for sure. Okay. That's uh, we appreciate that. And kind of any, are there any other kind of resources that you kind of constantly are putting forward for people? Um, you know, if they, they do need another line to call or book to read or anything that you've come across that you've, you've really enjoyed utilizing as a resource. Yeah. Uh, my favorite book to recommend right now is Becoming Bulletproof, and it's by um, Evie Pumpurus, and she is a former Secret Service agent, but it's it's great. So I'm like buying it for lots of, you know, college seniors and giving it to my friends. Another one that's more of a, a traditional salary negotiation book, um, well, two actually, is Women Don't Ask, and that's by Sarah Lashaber and Linda Babcock. And that's going to give you all of the data, you know, on what we're not getting and what we're not asking for and some tools. Mm. But then they also have a follow-up book, Ask For It, How Women Can Use the Power of Negotiation to Get What They Really Want. And if you want the how-to manual, like that's a good good book for that. And it's not just about salary. So, you'll, you know, you'll learn assertiveness skills from those. And those, you know, those are books I've read and have put to personal use um, that I highly recommend. Oh, very cool. Okay, excellent. I'll put those on the show notes as well okay. and links to those. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing those and and just for sharing all that you do and all the good work that you continue to do and uh, and this wonderful book. I'm so, very excited to, <laughs> to get my own copy and read it. <laughs> I think all of us, no matter where we are, really, I'm kind of between between jobs right now and I'm trying to figure out what to do and where to go next. And I think, you know, this type of conversation can really happen at any stage of life. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thank you so much, Kara. And that's a wrap. All the resources and links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes and on this episode's page on the website. If you're looking to purchase Kara's new book on assertiveness, visit her website at drowningintimidity.com and use the discount code COURAGE to get free shipping on your order. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review to help out this little podcast. Five stars goes a huge way, and I just so appreciate your support. I know it says write a review. It can be super daunting, but Apple is not asking for a novel. It's just simple, hey, what's up? Cider's awesome. Women rule. You know, anything like that, that would be more than fine. And for more information about me and this podcast, visit me online at othercwords.com. Talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening.